Hello and welcome to Inside Education, a podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. Presented by me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary school teacher and a college teacher educator. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, published by Routledge, is available in ebook, hard copy, and audiobook formats. You can listen to or download over 420 previous episodes of Inside Education produced since 2009 by going to my website seandelaney.com and clicking on the podcasts tab. You can email feedback or suggestions by writing to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com and you can follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. This week on the podcast, I feature someone who approaches education from an engineering background, specifically in the area of voice recognition and artificial intelligence. Dr. Trish Scanlon set herself the challenge of designing software that could recognize children's speech. She explains why that was no small challenge because of how children's speech differs from adult speech in terms of volume, fluency, pace, and not to mind the different accents. What makes Trisha's story interesting for this podcast are the insights her work generated in how children learn to read and the applications of voice recognition software in education settings. Trisha's company is called Soapbox Labs and although they don't create applications for schools themselves, their software is used in many entertainment and educational applications. You like this episode if you want to gain insights into how teachers can save time by getting technology to do work we used to have to do ourselves. Trish stimulates thinking on the future of technology in the classroom for providing feedback to students and for personalising instruction. The podcast will also appeal to anyone interested in creating applications for schools or in education technology generally. When I met up with Trish on Zoom recently, I began by asking her to tell me what Soapbox Labs do. So Soapbox Labs has built proprietary speech recognition specifically for children's voices, language and behaviours. And we license our technology to third parties who develop the content, the apps, the web services that children interact with. And we power the voice interactions in those products. And I suppose we're pretty used nowadays to hearing voice recognition, you know, when we phone up call centers and so on, we get put onto these automatic machines. But what's different about children's voices in terms of uh, voice recognition? So children's voices are physically very different to adults. They've thinner, shorter vocal tracks. They have smaller vocal folds. And that actually has a physical uh, impact on the voice and where it actually physically resides in the spectrum. So it's tend to be squeakier, right? But there's a lot of significant amounts of information um, that just reside in a different part of the spectrum. So when you're building a product based on adult voices, sometimes the information that they're expecting to see in some certain areas doesn't, isn't there, it's, it's in a different part of the spectrum. But what's also very different is that their language is very different. And today, voice recognition depends quite heavily on what's called language modeling. So all the rules of language and all examples of how people speak is part of the prediction of what people say. So the the AI system kind of listens to physically what it sounds like, but also, well, I think it sounds like that, but also this is often uh, what a language or a sentence structure looks like. Therefore, it's more likely to be this because this is how people speak. But then you get kids and kids break all those rules, right? (laughs) You know, they don't follow how adults speak. 
Um, and they change very rapidly as they develop, right? So a child can mature in their language, but also their behaviors are very different to adults. They tend to uh, shout, whisper, sing, over-enunciate, kind of playfully speak, uh, have very long pauses as they think about what they're saying. And, and that really messes with the system that has been built for adults because when adults interact with these systems, we have all have a bit of learned behavior at this point. We kind of straighten ourselves up, think about what we want to achieve in our interaction with our Alexa or Siri or Google. And we know from learned behavior what worked before and what doesn't work. So then you kind of straighten yourself up and say what the best. And you get you get your outcome. Kids don't do that. They're not going to learn. And they just they actually almost view it as human in some ways. And they just blurt out whatever they want. And all those factors together really impact the performance for children when it's been designed and built for adults. And I suppose another difference is that children are less inhibited about their accents. So, for example, whereas I can kind of, you know, if Alexa doesn't recognize me the first time, I can speak a little bit more clearly. But children's accents vary hugely. So that must also be something you have to factor in. Yeah, I mean, look, there is actually a huge impact. There's a, a research, academic research that was published in the New York Times recently that actually outlined how Alexa, Siri, Google all performed poorly for certain demographics in, in the US, particularly Black and Latina. Accents and dialects are quite important as well. And that's just because these systems were originally built and, and adopted by one demographic, which tended to be, a, you know, um, you know, very heavily older white male in the certain uh, affluent areas of the US and that would be tech and everybody knows that it's kind of quite tech is quite heavily skewed demographically and sometimes when these systems are built off data that's acquired out in the wild it can skew very heavily towards a demographic that's using it more so when other demographics start to use it they're not going to have the same experience and it's actually quite difficult for the, for those companies to address and fix the problems because they've been evolving for so many years so with children you know they're not masking their accents they're not masking their dialects they're certainly not trying to improve how they speak in order to get a better outcome so what you know it, it's hurting performance and it's actually hurting it in a very biased way because you could have certain kids or certain demographics having a very good experience and somebody else not and you know when you're not having it you know if you're getting you know uh, a canned answer or you know it's been telling you for the umpteenth time it doesn't understand you you know and it's very frustrating so we've spent the time so far talking about technology, but of course, the focus of this podcast is on education and the application of your work is in education. So how is speech recognition or voice recognition technology used to teach children something like reading? So I'll give you a little bit of background to how I came to this. So I'm an engineer, right? I do have a PhD in speech recognition. I'm, all, I'm, I'm AI and, you know, that was my background, but I'm also a parent, um, and it was when my daughter was three, um, probably three and a half, I would say. And it was at that stage where I was feeling like, oh, you know, we're supposed to be kind of getting them into, used to the phonics or the phonological awareness and all this. Um, and I downloaded some apps that were actually, you know, pedagogy wise were like, you know, university approved and developed and, and the graphics were beautiful and the interactions are fabulous. Um, and I was watching her learn. And as a researcher, right, I'm, I was actually very curious to see how she could progress herself without my intervention and just to see how much they were really teaching. And that was just, you know, that's just the geek in me, let's say. Um, but she was interacting with them. What I noticed was they were able to very passively 
you know, play her sounds, show her a letter or, or uh, you know, a letter combination. But when it came to assessing whether she could recall or pronounce them, they all they could do is give her multi-choice. So they'd play the sound and then she'd select which one and, you know, her little character was running along and she'd have to send it in one direction for that that letter combination and another direction for this one. And she didn't get it right. She just looked at it again and went, okay, I guess it's the other one. And she, so she wasn't learning anything. And then, so the, I was getting email updates telling me that she progressed through levels three, four, five. And I'm going, wow, she's doing really well. But then when I actually showed it to her, I said, well, what's that sound? She just shrugged and goes, I don't know. And it really struck me that when, like, you know, for me, and maybe it's, it's so obvious for people in education, but for, for me at that point, this is back in 2013, it was very fundamental that, you know, teaching a child to read is a very listening, prompting, encouraging is such an important part to their progress. Um, but yet none of these, as much as they were investing in them, were able to do that listening part and to be able to have her actively recall and pronounce sounds. Whereas if you had a maths app, which I her also playing maths app, that was really easy. She was able to progress and the app was able to quickly identify where she could go back and, you know, bring her back to or repeat a, a lesson if she didn't get it. So it was a very big piece. And then I was thinking, okay, God, that's the same with language learning. I mean, you can't independently progress. And, you know, talking to some friends who were teachers in the early days, and they were saying, well, you know, teaching phonics in the classroom, whatever, you know, or any kind of early literacy, a huge part of it is assessment. And children progress very quickly, or they can actually, you know, take a, a step back very, very, you know, and it happens so frequently, but she goes, well, you know, you've got like, you know, 20, 30 kids in the classroom being able to frequently do that assessment. It's just so time consuming. It's not that people don't want to do it. It's not that people don't know it will be useful. It's just, it, it's physically, you know, very difficult given the resources in the classroom. So for the teachers, I was like, wow, they could really use it. I could clearly see that if she was independently learning on an app, she, she could do with it. And it'd be a way to uh, help progress the children, give the teachers this information when they do get a chance to sit down with them. Wouldn't it be great to know the parts they were struggling with the minute you sit down with them, I suppose, and have that really useful one-to-one -one interaction, more productive. So to my mind, it was, okay, speech recognition would be, having spent my whole career at that point working in speech recognition, I thought, wow, this is a hugely impactful use of speech recognition because people were using it in customer service. They were using it, you know, we were, Siri was out at the time and I went, yeah, setting the timer and playing your music is great, but you could actually teach kids and, and it'd be an aid, I would say, in the classroom or in the home for remote learning that you could actually scale quite effectively, right? Because, and it has to be built right, right? I mean, parking that for a side, how it was built and what, what the problems were with speech recognition back then, a well-built system could actually revolutionize how we do this and allow kids to progress, you know, but it wasn't there. And I was scratching my head back in 2013, going, why wouldn't such a useful tool be already in, in the market, given Siri was already out there? So is the idea then that children can read for, say, an app and the app can interpret how they're reading and can give them feedback on the reading? Is that the idea? Yeah. So we like to think of it as the, um, the technology acts like the helpful adult. right? So it listens, it assesses what was said, how well it was said. Um, so we return like confidence scores down to the phonetic level, you know, whether they pronounce the whole word correctly or just part of the word correctly and that allows 
let's say, who are the person who's developing the app, right, the, 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 you know, the developer of the content, to create a little lesson around that or feedback to the child or correct their pronunciation or ask them to try it again. You know, so the child can get this immediate feedback. The teacher can then have this information sent to them saying, okay, the child has practiced these things. These are the ones they got right. These are the ones they struggled with. So the experience for the child is very interactive. And it's very interesting to watch a child interact with these technologies because they're doing a lesson, but they know the system's listening. So they know, and they make more of an effort because they know, because we, we do stuff as well around comprehension. So, you know, for the older kids, when they're reading, they're going to be asked a question afterwards about it as well. So they tend to pay a little bit more attention and be more engaged. And, and it's a case of when a child is doing homework, you know, the, the system can analyze whether they actually did it or not. You know, did they read that paragraph or are they just guessing at the answers of the comprehension, you know, because <laughs> they had to read it aloud. Yeah, good incentive, you know, and if it's done in a nice way, it can be hugely engaging for the child as well. So in a way, you're the wholesaler. You've developed the technology, but then you license it out to other people who actually use it in apps that can be used in classrooms. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's a very interesting position for us because we are the experts in speech recognition, voice technology. We could have built the apps and the content as well, but we kind of felt like there were so many companies out there with excellent expertise and content and you know we would just partner with them as opposed to us rebuilding everything again and and what that has allowed us to do is to work across a huge number of disparate areas like so we are enabling dyslexia screeners in the US we're enabling practice products reading practice we're enabling fluency assessment products we're enabling speech therapy so we have got this lovely view of, of all these different areas. And we're lear- we've learned so much from interacting with people across all these different content areas, as well as language learning, you know, where some language learning can happen on this side of the world, it can happen in Asia as well, um, and how people interact and, and, and watching it being used in so many different ways by these developers is quite uh, interesting as well. And you've said that you d- your interest in this grew out of your role as a parent. So are the applications largely being used by parents at home or how widely are they being used in classrooms, in schools? In classrooms at the moment, it's quite uh, wide. We do have, so let's say it depends on the area. In the US, it's being used in classrooms for assessment on literacy to be able to place children. So let's say after covid uh, when kids went back to the classroom in September, there's thousands of children across all different districts all over the US that were used. Um, the technology was used by Amplify to help the teacher place where they were. So the kids were reading paragraphs, the fluency was assessed, it was too difficult, they'd be given an easier one. And then it, it was, was leveling them. So the teacher knew on return to the classroom where the children sit, sat relative to, to everyone there. So they actually had a head start on knowing which kids might have needed intervention, which kids were progressing ahead. So another example in the, in the home would be language learning. We have, you know, there are, we licensed app developers who uh, they sell to parents actually across Europe and Asia for learning English. Um, and the parents then would use that with their kids in the home as well. Um, and there's other entertainment apps and, and other type of edutainment and things like that, that that will be used in the home. But a huge amount of adoption and work we have in the US is actually going to be in classrooms. And have you any idea of how widely the apps related to your software and technology are being used in Irish schools? At the moment, I 
understand there is, uh, and I can't, there's certain stuff we can't talk about until they actually hit the market. There is a company that I know the apps are widely used in Ireland and they're integrating our technology. I think it's just been launched in one country. It's kind of soft launch at the moment. So I assume it will make it to the Irish distribution at some point, but I can't be sure of that right now. And you've mentioned dyslexia screening is one of the things that it can do. How does that work? So there's a lot of research that shows, um, and that's a research that's been done on for 10 or 15 years, that you can actually use uh, rapid naming. Um, it's kind of like, you know, so it's for, and rapid name is only one aspect of how they do dyslexia screen, but it's the bit that uh, speech recognition can be integrated. So pre-literate children, so talking about ages four or five, in the US, I think most states have been mandated now that um, states have to provide dyslexia reading screening on the way into kindergarten. So the idea is that, this one exercise um, as part of a, a, a bit a, a bigger effort to to discern whether dyslexia is um, going to be flagged for a particular child is that they are showing let's say tree house cat dog sun you know so they're shown uh, a sequence of images and the child has to name them so they don't have to be reading but how the processing happens can give an indication of um, a likelihood for dyslexia as part of a you know one of many tasks that a child would be asked to perform, but they can perform them in an app or they can perform them on the web service and it can, the system can then notify the teacher. Uh, but it's hugely engaging for the child. So this four or five-year-old is just interacting with a fun app and have been asked to name things. But in the background, a decade's worth of research, you know, coupled with our speech technology and some other very, in, you know, interesting research and development is being able to give an indication of whether this child may need intervention for dyslexia and you know it's I think it's it, it's well known at this point that if you intervene with a child it can take four times longer to intervene with a child age eight or nine than it does with a four or five year old you know so to be able to have that impact earlier in a child's life could be hugely impactful for their ultimate success and their confidence you know that they're not in school for four or five years with an undiagnosed um, a reading difficulty. Okay, so you, you've mentioned the application for screening just for dyslexia. You've mentioned learning English as an additional language. You've mentioned uh, learning to read. And I've also heard you elsewhere refer to the applications for speech therapy. Are there other applications you can envisage for voice recognition in, in education? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking to other people about uh, social emotional learning, being able to identify, you know, communicate with, um, you know, a character. We're doing a lot around maths at the moment to be able to, you know, verbally answer a maths question as opposed to always having to um, tap something in your answer or type it. It creates, you know, vocabulary building. It creates a very immersive, frictionless experience that can be very engaging for the child. And it can, to be honest, you know, one of the, the ways we look at voice, and I've always looked at it, has been in this area for a couple of decades now, is that Voice is a lot more. It's, it's it's an interface technology. It's how you and I are communicating. It's how humans communicate. We've had to, you know, develop keyboards and mouse and tap touch because we've been unable to communicate with technology. So to be able to create products that kids, particularly young kids who are pre-literate or don't have complex thinking to be able to navigate menu systems or follow instructions that, you know, to be able to naturally interact with your voice kind of opens up the possibility of technology huge in accessibility for children who have 
difficulty writing, typing, physically unable to interact with the technology that's presented to them today. So you're kind of creating a more accessible and, uh, you know, world for everybody and just being more inclusive, I guess, of, of people of all abilities in the classroom and at home. We've talked uh, about the challenges and the opportunities that arise from from voice recognition technology in relation to English. Have you looked at other languages? And I'm particularly interested in Irish, but obviously there are other like, you know, French and German or whatever. But have you looked at other languages? Yes, we've we've adapted our system to be able to do. We're kind of an, a language agnostic system in some ways now. And in, internally in the company, um, we have developed, you know, done certain amount of work around Mandarin, uh, Spanish and Portuguese. So none of, they haven't been launched on the market yet. Like, but I, I'm intrigued by the prospect of Irish too. There's a lot of work to be done there. and I, But I do believe it's possible. I do believe we could help a lot of kids uh, with their oral Irish through this. And taking all of this together, what do you see as the implications of this work for the work of classroom teachers? I think it can help level the playing field a little bit we know that personalized learning we know that frequent practice frequent assessment early intervention through screening or frequent assessment is really important and we know how important reading is to unlock a child's full potential so to be able to give a tool for teachers in the classroom to be able to allow children to progress at their own rate flag it up your to me this is a finally using technology to do something that can level um, so, you know, some kids are very fortunate to have a lot of help at home. Some kids are fortunate to be able to be naturally very good at reading, but, you know, equally to be able to really do that uh, personalized learning um, when it comes to reading or language learning. I think this is a scalable way to do it. It's a scalable way to do it if it's built correctly without bias to be this very objective system that can, you know, create data points that teachers and educators previously have been unable to get so it's very unlikely that any teacher has ever seen the data points on a daily basis or on even several times a week basis to be able to help a child or flag up the fluency of each children at that frequency level and what could that do and we're working with researchers in the US around to create the next generation um, of reading products to be able to say well if you could really identify the the intonation and the prosody of a child. And so you can imagine as humans, we're somewhat limited in that we can count the words correct for a minute and we can probably count the errors, substitutions, deletions, but we could probably give a subjective opinion about prosody or their intonation. And we have a feeling about how that relates to fluency. But would it be, how useful would it be to be able to actually measure and provide that and then to be able to relate that to a fluency outcome? And are people actually using it in that way that you do have, say, you know, daily or weekly assessment points that can be checked and monitored by teachers over a period of time? Yes. Yeah, so there's work in, in the works at the moment. So let's say from the child's perspective, it's not formal assessment. They're just reading. They're just reading out loud. Just part of their everyday work. It's not a big deal. But in the background, those information is collated. Um, so it's not that the child is having a formal assessment, they're just practicing. So the practice can become formative assessment, um, you know, as opposed to the summative assessment at, at different points. And is the child wearing a headset for this or, you know, what kind of not technology? Necessary. Yeah. They, ca- they can do, it, it, not necessary. Um, it depends on how close proximity the children are sitting. I know ideally you could have many kids in the classroom using this without headsets. 
Um, you know, if they're all sitting right on top of each other, maybe headsets is more appropriate then. But for the most part, no. And particularly, it's very difficult to be expecting four or five-year-olds to be wearing headsets. I think. And one of the limitations that I always saw with conventional technology when it was used in education is that the amount of feedback that's given to learners is minimal. But you seem to be able to overcome that. Can you say a bit about that? The feedback to the learner themselves, I mean, this, so this is very much dependent on, so our partners who create the content, they choose what form of feedback to the child um, to give. So is it, are you trying to encourage or are you trying to be quite, you know, uh, you know, uh, prescriptive on what the mistake was? Are you going to, so what is, so what we do is we, we run workshops with our clients sometimes and we help them understand the potential of feedback to the child as well as to the teacher. And then it very much depends on the product, right? So if this is more of a edutainment app, maybe it's just trying to encourage a child to uh, read out loud, pronounce that word, whatever. Or maybe you're trying, you, you know, you're trying to actually correct um, pronunciation, you know, of a particular uh, phonic sound. Um, so it what we found is it our system returns in near real time. So that information is possible to give immediate feedback to the child. And then it's, it depends on the product and what they're trying to achieve, um, how they feed back to the child and when. And are, are all of the products that use your technology, are they web-based or are they app-based or how, how, how do they actually work from that point of view? Yeah, web-based, we've, we've worked on web-based systems. So, you know, it could be on a laptop or a Chromebook, um, you know, Android systems, iOS systems. Yeah, we're agnostic on how it's deployed to the child. And can you see it being used with older students? Like I'm even wondering about college students or pre-service teachers, you know, beyond the initial learning to read, are there other applications of, of this technology? There are other products and companies that do it for adults we we strongly believe and we've focused for eight years on children because it is such a significant challenge uh, to get this working and you know for us you know we're we're focused on being able to allow children to speak more naturally have conversation we have many new like we were talking about the data points that um we're working on as well to be able to create new data points so for us there's so much that we can do for children and that is our focus and we are the experts globally in that and we feel like for adults or or in college and and for further learning or you know life learning um, there are many other companies can deliver uh, those products into into those demographics we feel like we're one of very few companies focused on this area and it's, it's a much needed focus. And ultimately, looking down the road, do you see this kind of technology working alongside teachers, replacing teachers or redefining the role of teachers? Very much it's an aid and and we're very much teacher led. Uh, You know, I mean, we've done a huge amount of work uh, working with teachers to understand and we work with the companies that that, you know, the teachers are the the customers here. Like, you know, and, and, you know, there are some products that are into the home where the parents are, but it's it's very much the majority of this is is teacher led. The idea is to how do you um, provide teaching aids? How do you provide how do you augment the experience for everybody in the classroom? given the problem statement that we started with was we knew more frequent practice assessment, early screening and intervention is useful. And that was widely accepted by teachers and the educators and pedagogy experts and, you know, all academics. And, and then how could we use technology to help across, across all of that? I can't really see, um, you know, 
any product that's digital in this respect, um, you know, ever replacing. I don't think that any technology is that strong. I think what, what AI does very well is to, in a very narrow, deep way, help serve particular issues and problems. And, and to do that extremely, to do it well without huge amount of false positives and false negatives is extremely difficult. But this is to be able to augment what's already known about teaching. Um, and, and where the, you know, almost as if, if you had all the resources in the world to have many human experts in the classroom helping the teacher to sit with each children like this. And can we use technology to help that? Because we know that the resources in the classroom are never going to allow that many human uh, assistants in the classroom. Well, I even remember myself, you know, teaching, say, senior infants reading and one of the biggest challenges as a teacher was trying to hear as many children as possible read every day whereas what you're actually doing is going to free up teachers time so that they can do more productive things during that time rather than having to listen to children read over and over in the classroom yeah and and to do it so hopefully more frequently than ever possible so you're not there's never going to be you just want to catch a child quickly when they're failing or, or, or falling behind their peers and, and, and give them the intervention quickly so so that they can, you know, catch up and, and reach their full potential and free the time. So it will change things a bit, but for the better to be more productive and hopefully have better outcomes and less frustrating for a child that they're not feeling in the classroom that their peers are so much more ahead of them. They're getting the attention quickly and, and hopefully to the, to the, you know, to the benefit of everybody in the classroom. No, even the kids are far ahead, you know, that they can continue to progress at their rate. And when somebody walks into their home and they use Alexa or they use Siri, you know, they're probably walking into a generally quiet environment. But in a classroom, trying to identify children's speech where there's lots of other noise going on around. Has that been a particular challenge for you to solve? Yes, it was a challenge. But when when I started back in 2013, like, you know, one of the, you know, like I said, I had uh, a young child myself and you know she was starting Montessori and stuff I was well aware of the environments in which children they don't go to a quiet room and close the door and do their homework like that just doesn't happen my, my daughter's now 12 it still doesn't happen so they inhabit noisy environments like classrooms actually even in the home there's often parents in the background dogs barking tvs on other children you know until they're much older until they're teenagers they tend to be around other uh, noisy environments. So for us, it was very important that if we're going to bring this product to market, that it would work for all children um, of all ages um, and developmental uh, stages and all real world environments which children inhabit. And that includes the classroom. So yes, that was a challenge, but yes, we we definitely address that and, and it's it's been quite successful. I presume it was used quite a lot during the pandemic when students were being taught at home. Yes, there's a lot. Yeah, huge uptick um, in, in, in how it was. And, and probably, you know, for any parent that, that was at home, you know, who isn't a teacher. And I even think the teachers are finding difficulty to get the right amount of uh, time for children. That any tool that was allowing the children to progress without having a teacher to sit alongside them it was hugely important. Um, so uh, this tool, and, and wasn't just even in the tools that are out there being used more, but actually definitely inspired an awful lot of big 
education companies that are notoriously slow to change that they need to change because a lot of the tools, even the digital ones, have been designed for use exclusively in the classroom. And there's very little flexibility once, once you're looking at home. So I think what it does is it allows people to think a little more outside the classroom and go, well, actually, these tools can be used for homework. They could be used to, you know, I mean, so now it's like, oh, maybe this digital online options can happen in the classroom and outside the classroom and what do we need to build. So it definitely was a huge moment of inspiration about how speech tech can be used to help, how ed tech tools should be used into the future. And I think it did help a lot of people re-envision um, what the future of ed tech should be. I suppose the downside of it is that if a teacher is going to be recording lots of children reading, there's going to be a huge amount of data collected. And that has data protection implications. What do teachers need to know about that in order to be compliant? For example, in Europe with GDPR, and I know it's, you know, that a lot of your market is in the United States, but uh, what are the data data privacy issues that arise? Yes, yeah, so there, all our clients are very well versed in the data protection uh, issues, as are we. Um, you know, what happens a lot is that the data is actually not even stored anywhere. You know, so the data points derived by the students is nothing more than you have today in, uh, you know, Microsoft Teams or, or whatever product people are collating, you know, data points about each student today anyway. If the certain product wants to be able to allow the teacher to listen back, uh, you know, the, the relevant per- permissions are are gotten the same way as they would do uh, uh, for other data points about uh, the students are allowed to be stored. So for a lot of the clients we work with in the US, they don't store the, the speech, the voice of the, the children. In some cases they do, but they have to be very explicit. And when the permissions are sought and, and got, they have to be able to be deleted at any time in the future. The infrastructure has to be there. But the teachers themselves just have to be aware that it's, uh, the onus is on the company that's delivering this as well. So they will be seeking the right permissions from the teacher or whoever the relevant person is to be able to deliver this. And it's much in the same way as you've seen for any other data that's collected by students. That's quite sensitive. Um, you know, that w- they all have to be protected. All forms of data have to be protected. And what are your future plans now for developing the software? So we've lots of, yeah, we have a big backlog of new features, like say working with different companies in the US to, to be able to develop all different products. Like, so we're just expanding our client base basically globally now as well, as well as working on new features and new expanding the usability of it, expanding the, you know, into the future, the languages, um, but geography, uh, ge- geographies around the world as well. We're doing a lot around voice command and control too. So be able to actually also, we have a separate effort on, so we have Soapbox Educate and Soapbox Play. Um, and play is where kids can, in a game, you know, whether it's Minecraft or so, you could imagine the child being able to use their voice as opposed to navigate crazy complex menus to be able to more seamlessly be able to integrate with, um, uh, you know, interact with games. But also when I talked earlier about accessibility, to be able to turn something on off, to be able to open a document, to be able to close a book, uh, to be able to move to the next page. Um, so that kind of command and control. So it'd be very useful in gaming, but also useful in accessibility. And then, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of the type of interactive um, stream services like Netflix and stuff like that. They were, they're starting to do more interactive. Or what, you know, choose your own adventure. What, what would you like to see happen next in this? And you can imagine voice being a huge part of that, as well as in the idea of AOR and XOR 
gaming and and immersive experiences. So there's many many areas of expansion here that that we're keen to that, that we're keen to pursue. Okay, we're coming near the end, Trish, and I have a few general questions that I put to all the guests on the podcast. And one of them is, what is school for, or what are schools for, in your view? In primary in particular, I think it's just to foster a love of education and love of learning. So this is, and, and I'm not, uh, as I said, I'm an engineer, but I'm a parent. And, and for me, the most successful outcome from primary school for my children is just to, to love to learn and to love school. Um, and if we can foster that through inspiration, through engaging them, through more, uh, you know, less frustration, falling behind, that kind of thing, being able to trust, I, I think that's a great outcome, confidence for our children when they leave. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Yeah, I had a very tough teacher in, in primary school, but I, I always respected her. She was tough, but she there was uh, a full respect, mutual respect, which, you know, I never mind the toughness. If, if, if it was driving driving me forward you know. and how did that toughness come across not letting me uh you know daydream for most of the past looking at the window probably. <laughs> okay. not a bad thing sometimes but probably excessive you know put, reining me back in and making me focus and make me realize i could probably do more if i focused <laughs> okay okay what is your vision of an educated person I love the idea of, um, you know, knowledge versus wisdom, you know, building up knowing things and actually uh, being able to apply it in the real world, I think is hugely valuable. And I think it's hugely valuable into the future. You know, I want my kids to be able to get their points for it, but also to understand how to implement what they've learned and have the confidence to do it in the in the real world um, and not just rote learning and learning, you know, learning things off. I want them to be able to learn, express, uh, collaborate, uh, research, um, communicate, you know. So for me, so you ask me these questions and I think of my children, you know, how I'd like to see them when they finish their education. Yeah. And who or what inspires you? Who or what inspires me? I think a balanced life. Um, I think it's a what. Um, I don't think success is blind and I don't think everybody shares the same definition of success. So I think is finding what your what I find that what works for me is to find understand my definition of success for myself and to go after that as opposed to somebody else's. So the inspiration for me is to look at other people who've achieved and be very successful and happy in their careers and and in their life. And it's not always the same for everybody. So and and my final question, it's kind of it, it's kind of combining two things because the general question is, have you a favorite writer, book, or blog about education? But the other thing that I'm curious in your particular case is, you know, for someone who has a doctorate in engineering, how did you become aware of terms like phonemes, phonological awareness? Because not too many uh, engineering PhDs will be familiar with that language. So. How did you, who are your influences in education or how did you kind of acquire the educational knowledge that you did? Well, it's quite actually interesting. When I realised and learned how children learn to read through phonics, interestingly, it's exactly how we teach computers to do speech recognition. You actually teach them the small unit of each sound and then you teach them how to thread them together. And that is actually how we teach computers to do speech recognition. I found that fascinating when I actually watched my daughter learn to read and realizing the connection between the two. Weirdly, one could help the other, but we, we teach a child much like we teach a computer. Um, so it just kind of inspired me that 
this was a fascinating area. And, you know, after doing a PhD for many years, research is my thing. So when I get interested in a subject, I tend to do extensive research into it. Um, so I just, I remember watching Ken Robinson's, was his, his TED talk, um, and, and being inspired to what was possible um, and understanding how, um, I think for me, it was kind of looking at education and how can we solve these problems at scale and have a real impact on kids' lives. So I suppose a lot of that was kicked off by, by the realization of how children learn to read. And then that just inspired me to read extensively. Um, and, and I think it just shows the, the importance of making connections among different disciplines. Yeah. Oh, huge. I mean, you know, you get, I do believe some of the best thing, you know, the inspiration that you can bring from a different area to a new area. And people often look, you know, you have the same people, with, you know, the same education base altogether will tend to have a lot of group think. Whereas if you bring people in with different experiences, you, you can have a real breakthrough um, in, in how we address things. So I actually do think cross-disciplinary tends to bring some of the best breakthroughs we have in technology. So to bring, and you know, in our company, we bring people together from all different backgrounds and disciplines and tends to be the most fruitful uh, to really have a, to have an impact in that and to create something that's really meaningful. And was there any particular book then that helped you kind of learn about how children learn to read? Oh, I can't think offhand. Sorry, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot there. I, as 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 a researcher, I tend to to look read a lot of papers and and, and read quite widely and broadly, um, you know, on these things like to 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 get a feel, especially coming from technology. So I yeah, I'm, I'm an academic at heart, so there's definitely a lot of uh, research papers. And how well engineer Trish Scanlon from Soapbox Labs has applied that research in education. Thanks to Trish for the insights into educational applications of voice recognition software and artificial intelligence. Thanks also to my colleague Jean Megan who suggested featuring Trish on the podcast. If you liked this podcast, please leave a review of it on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. You can listen back to this episode or to over 420 previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. Follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd and email me with comments or suggestions to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which was published by Routledge, is available in all good libraries and as an audiobook. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.